Previously, I have talked about V.S. Naipaul's book called Among the Believers, in which he took a journey through the Islamic world in around 1980, and uh, he kind of explored this world. So today, I'm going to read from the book in which he goes to Malaysia and gives us some idea about his experience there with a bit of history of Islam in that part of the world. So without any delay, let's just go to the book and read. Here we go. It was from India or the Indo-Pakistan subcontinent that religion went to Southeast Asia. Hinduism and Buddhism went first. They quickened the great civilizations of Cambodia and Java, whose monuments Angkor, Borbidar are among the wonders of the world. These Indian religions, we are told, were not spread by armies or colonists, but by merchants and priests. And that was the kind of Indian traveller who, after Islam had come to the subcontinent, began in the 14th and 15th century to take Islam to Indonesia and Malaysia. Islam went to Southeast Asia as another religion of India. There was no Arab invasion as in Sindh. No systematic slaughter of the local warrior caste, no planting of Arab military colonies, no sharing out of loot, no sending back of treasure and slaves to a caliph in Iraq or Syria, no tribute, no taxes on unbelievers. There was no calamity. No overnight abrogation of a settled world order. Islam spread as an idea, a prophet, a divine revelation, heaven and hell, a divinely sanctioned code and mingled with older ideas. To purify that mixed religion, the Islamic missionaries now come. And it is still from the subcontinent and especially from Pakistan that the most passionate missionaries come. They do not bring news of military rule, the remittance economy, the loss of law, the tragedy of the Bihari Muslims now wanted neither by Bangladesh nor by Pakistan. These events are separate from Islam. And these men bring news only of Islam and the enemies of Islam. They offer passion and it is the special passion of Muslims of the subcontinent. The passion of People who, in spite of Pakistan, feel themselves a threatened minority. The passion of people who, with their view of history as a pleasant tale of conquest, feel they have ceased to be conquerors. And the passion, above all, of Muslims who feel themselves on the margin of the true Muslim world. The Persian distance from Arabia created the Shia faith. And the Persian conviction that they are Islamically purer than the Arabs. The Indian Muslim distance from the Arabia is greater than the Persian and their passion is as fierce or fiercer. Every Muslim is a missionary for Islam. That was the idea of the brotherhood assembled in the waterlogged desert of the Punjab. And after four days of tent life of mass prayers, the simple men go out intoxicated by the vision of a world about to change. Some go to Malaysia. They have been going for years and now their passion finds a response. 
There are a few Hinduized architectural remains in the far north, but no great Indianized civilization grew in Malaysia, as in Java or Cambodia. The land was more or less bypassed and left to the Malays until the last century. The stories of Joseph Conrad give an impression of the remoter places of the Malay archipelago a hundred years ago. European costing vessels occasionally in competition with Arabs, men of the pure faith. European trading or administrative settlements on the edge of the sea or the river with the forest at their backs. Chinese peasants and laborers taking root wherever they can. Malay sultans and rajas, warriors with their courts. And in the background, simpler Malays, people of river and forest, half Muslim, half animist. Separate, colliding worlds, the world of Europeans pushing on to the outer edge of darkness, the closed tribal world of Malays. It was one of the Conrad's themes. And in Malaysia today, the Islamic revolutionaries, the young men who reject, are the descendants of those people in the background, the people of river and forest. In Malaysia, they have been the last to emerge. And they have emerged after the colonial cycle, after independence, after money. There is now in Malaysia more than coconuts and rattan to be picked up at the landing stages. Malaysia produces many precious things, tin, rubber, palm oil, oil. Malaysia is rich. Money going down has created a whole educated generation of village people and drawn them into the civilization that once appeared to be only on the outer edge of darkness, but is now universal. These young people grow to understand that in the last hundred years, while they or their parents slept, their country, a new idea, a composite of kingdoms and sultanates, was colonially remade. That the rich of Malaysia of today grows on colonial foundations and is a British-Chinese creation. The British developed the mines and the plantations. They brought in Chinese and a lesser number of Indians to do the work of Malays couldn't do. Now the British no longer rule, but the Malays are only half the population. The Chinese have advanced. It is their energy and talent that keep the place going. The Chinese are shut out from political power. Malays rule. The country is officially Muslim. With Muslim personal laws, sexual relations between Muslims and non-Muslims are illegal. And there is a kind of prying religious police. Legal discrimination against non-Muslims are outrageous. But the Malays who rule are established or of old or royal families who crossed over into the new world some generations ago. The new men of the villages who feel they, are, they have already lost so much find their path blocked at every turn. Money, development, education have awakened them only to the knowledge that the world is not like their village, that the world is not their own. Their rage, the rage of pastoral people with limited skills, limited money and a limited grasp of the world is comprehensive. Now they have a weapon, Islam. It is their way of getting even with the world. It serves their grief, 
their feeling of inadequacy, their social rage and racial hate. This Islam is more than the old religion of their village. The Islam the missionaries bring is a religion of impending change and triumph. It comes as part of a world movement. In readings in Islam, a local missionary magazine, it can be read that the West, in the eyes even of its philosophers, is eating itself up with its materialism and greed. The true believer, with his thoughts on the afterlife, lives for higher ideals. For a non-believer, with no faith in the afterlife, life is a round of pleasure. He spends the major part of his wealth on ostentatious living and demonstrates his pomp and show by wearing of silk and brocade and using vessels of gold and silver. Silk, brocade, gold and silver? Can that truly be said in a city like Kuala Lumpur? But this is a theology. It refers to a hadith and tradition about the Prophet. Hudefa one day asked for water and a Persian priest gave him water in a silver vessel. Hudefa rebuked the Persian. Hudefa had with his own ears heard the Prophet say that non-believers used gold and silver vessels and wore silk and brocade. The new Islam comes like this. And to the new men of the village, it comes as an alternative kind of learning and truth full of scholarly apparatus. It is passion without a constructive program. The materialistic world is to be pulled down first. The Islamic State will come later, as in Iran, as in Pakistan. And the message that starts in Pakistan doesn't stop in Malaysia. It travels to Indonesia, 120 million people to Malaysia's 12 poorer, more heterogeneous, more fragile, with a recent history of pogroms and mass killings. There, the new Islamic movement among the young is seen by its enemies as nihilism. They call it the Malaysian disease. So the Islamic passion of Pakistan with its own special roots converts and converts again, feeding other distresses. And the promise of political calamity spreads as good news.